I have a story that I have to tell you that only you will appreciate. <laughs> Glad you're telling it on our podcast. Yeah, good. Everyone else <laughs> pretend to appreciate it. I, I see your logic, Tracy, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> I was on a Zoom call today, a Zoom meeting, mm -hmm. and um, this dude that I was on the call with was trying to figure out how to, like, nicely tell me that I looked tired as hell. Oh. Um, Oof. And... And I don't know, somehow we ended up to my eyes looking sunken. <gasps> and I I was like, okay, first of all, thank you. And second of all, don't you know that this is the look? This is how I am trying to signal to an ancient vampire that I am the literature obsessed late night yeah. being of their dreams. So what he did, instead of saying, you look tired, was saying, you're achieving your goals. <laughs> That's what I heard. <laughs> you look undead. You Thank you. You are the smartest person that Harry knows, and you look undead. God bless. <laughs> Could Harry please come back? Like, I need a, a sweet boy to say nice things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll just bring him back, and the entire episode will just be him giving us affirmations and compliments. <laughs> and then talking about murder. Yeah, that's all I want in life. Affirmations, compliments, murder. Ooh, yes, not even talking about murder, just affirmations, compliments, murder. If I put that on a V-neck t-shirt, would you wear it? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right answer. <laughs> <laughs> affirmations, compliments, murder. What's the difference between the affirmations and the compliments? Doesn't matter. We're already at the murder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on a totally opposite note, you look downright perky, my sweet pea. Oh, thank you. I'm not. I'm very tired. So I appreciate that. It's uh, the fact that I had two large cups of coffee today. Ooh. I got to try out this new coffee shop near my parents' house. It is so cute. It's all barnyard, like indoor, everything's exposed wood beams mm. and hipster baristas. Ooh. And um, to my unending joy, they had oat milk. So I got to have yes. two different iced coffees with oat milk today. That's probably why I look perky. This is going to make me sound so L.A., but oat milk is the definitive milk. I mean, milk or milk alternative? Just fully milk. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I love oat milk. I, it is the only I've tried. And this is, is this riveting content? Um, so and as milk alternatives go, I find that coconut milk is good when it's something nope. sweet. So like a smoothie. I like coconut okay. milk in there. I almost never want almond milk is what I've learned. One, it's bad for the environment. Two, I always want it to not taste like almonds. And then I am I have shocked Pikachu face when it always <laughs> tastes like almonds. <laughs> but the problem with coconut milk for me is that I am not in any way tropical. Like, I don't true, want true. to operate under the guise that I enjoy sunshine or I'm going to, like, be 
closer to the equator. My insides don't need to pretend that while they're trying to digest this fake milk. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's the reason you're not into coconut milk. It's because you're the embodiment of an overcast, slightly rainy day. And I mean that with all the love and compliments and adoration and murder in the world. And murder. It does make sense that you would like coconut milk, though, because your flesh prison has some color in it. You like the sunshine. You are well, cute I feel as like, hell. I feel like half of that. St- thank you. I feel like half of that statement is true in that um, I like sunshine. I love sunshine. I love warm weather. I love the summer. I mean, I, I, my flesh prison is not. <laughs> Quite as pale as yours, but I, I definitely got the <laughs> Irish side, not the Italian can tan. I don't tan. I go straight from pale to sunburned and back to pale. <laughs> we are on episode 40, and it is so clear that we have been descending deeper and deeper into an existential crisis because we're now at the point of like, uh, my human flesh prison. Like, <laughs> I am but a mere wisp of smoke entrapped in this form. <laughs> I, for one, Rowan, am losing <laughs> my mind. <laughs> and on that note, yes, I am Rowan Hall. <laughs> and I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing in Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating with a side dish of mind loss. Thank you. Yeah, just a sprinkling, you know, like just a little a little dash. Insanity zest. Ooh, I love that. Just add it for flavor. <laughs> Insanity <laughs> zest. I'm just imagining zesting a lemon, but it's just a ball of like, you know, the scribble balls in cartoons that are meant to signify your emotions and like oh, depression yeah. medication commercials. Yeah, 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 yeah. Zest, zest, zest. By the way, if you, dear listener, would like to support this insanity zest, you can do that in a couple ways. Wanna rate, review, and subscribe? We'd love that. Wanna head over to our Patreon? It's patreon.com slash willingandfable. Wanna check out all the cool things we've mentioned and get some hits onto our website? Willingandfable.com. Wanna write in your story? Also willingandfable.com, but this time it's backslash contact. So thank you. Please feel free to do those things or not. Just keep listening. We love you either way. Ooh, that was well done. Smooth, crisp, concise. I love it. I love to see it. The part that no one would know if I wasn't telling you all right now is that Tracy realized it was my turn to say those things and that it was not written down in front of me and that I might be unable to do it. So I had to do it at <laughs> fast speed to prove that I can person without Tracy's help. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can person without Tracy's help. So, oh, proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Another cool way to support our podcast would be to support the friends of the podcast. Support mm-hmm. the people who support us. As you know, Greenleaf Geek is our spring sponsor of the pod. Many of our community members have had the opportunity to meet the lovely and talented Leah, the artist behind Greenleaf Geek, uh, in our Discord, which is very fun. She makes handmade dice. She curates the most beautiful selection of dice. If you're not already, go follow her at Greenleaf Geek on Twitter and Instagram. 
Rowan and I have had the opportunity to play with our Greenleaf Geek dice. I personally play with them every week in a session that's run by Tim, who you guys met in our Whiskey and Fable series. <laughs> They're so beautiful. And Rowan, the other night, I put this in the Discord, but like these dice did me so right. I was in combat and I was the only one to do damage on our enemies because I kept rolling really well with my dice. So it was just you against the world? Yeah, kind of. But I have a paladin, so she was super excited about uh, that. She yeah. felt really validated. Thank you, Leah, for saving our sweet paladin. <laughs> yes. So if you want sparkles, you can get dice with sparkles. If you want that earthy stone vibe like my Labradorite dice, Leah's got you. If you want a villainous mood like Rowan always does, you can have that too. <laughs> and when you shop... Handmade and curated dice at greenleafgeek.com. Please don't forget to use our custom podcast only coupon code FABLE, that's F A B L E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. All right, Trace, what the heck are we doing this week? All right, Rowan, as we often say on this podcast, when in doubt, history provides. <laughs> History is way wilder than half the textbooks even give it credit for. So what we wanted to do was share some crazy stories with you guys today. If you like hearing us tell you about wild events from the past, by the way, please let us know and share your favorite historical events because we will endeavor to cover them. But today we are going to focus on two weddings mm -hmm. that famously did not go according to plan and I know not one single darn thing about your topic. <laughs> I'm excited to cover my topic. It is the it is the first topic I covered at the first PowerPoint party my friends and I had. We have a PowerPoint party later this week. We do have a PowerPoint party later this week. I'm very excited about it. We'll probably talk about how it went next episode. Yes, because I haven't <laughs> researched my topic yet. <laughs> I finished mine last night. I'm very excited for it. But... For our very first PowerPoint party, which for those who don't know, we got together. Everyone had to make a PowerPoint presentation. You had three minutes to cover your topic. And for every 30 seconds you went over, you had to take a shot as penalty. Super fun, super creative. And for those who don't drink, uh, you can also just be forced to chug seltzer or something very carbonated because it sucks just as much as taking a shot. <laughs> if not more, I would say. Yeah, it's... It's rough. And it's a good alternative for people who, um, you know, just don't like shots or don't want to, you know, it's all about right. having fun. It's all about having fun. So the topic that I covered in the very first PowerPoint party with my friends that I'm going to cover here is the story of the wedding of Augusta of Saxe-Gotha and Prince Frederick. She's got quite the name and he just came in here as Frederick. So I mean, he's got more of a name, but I care less about him than I care about her. So... I'm giving her the attention. You'll find out more about him later on, but I'm going to start with a story. Okay. Compared to the comfortingly sturdy yet rugged sounds of her native German, the warbly tones of the English language sat wrong on Augusta's ears. It felt fluid in a way that was hard to grasp, like, like trying to hold onto a fistful of water in your hands while it seeps through your fingers. Frustrating and pointless. Why her parents and her tutors insisted that she did not need to learn this language would 
baffle her until the end of her days. They had wrongly assumed that everyone here would speak German, as all civilized countries should. Not to mention that the royal family itself was from Germany, so they must be fluent in her native tongue. To her abiding horror and frustration, her parents were wrong on both accounts. The only languages that floated about her now were the warbly tones of English and the silken sounds of French. She could not understand a single word of either. She was a stranger in a strange land. She neither spoke nor understood anything that was being said around her. She was utterly alone and about to marry a man she had spent a grand total of a few hours with. What's worse is that she could tell, even in those few hours, that he'd been unimpressed with her. The second she walked into the room, he looked her up and down for a long moment. So long, in fact, that she grew increasingly uncomfortable by the second, and eventually she stammered out something akin to a greeting. In that moment, Prince Frederick, her future husband, scoffed at her, right in her face as though he judged her immediately and found her to be very much lacking. He'd known her for all of 30 seconds and already decided she was an inferior sort of woman. Augusta wished in that moment that she was the kind of woman who could stand up for herself, the kind of woman who could deliver a few choice cutting words to the prince, thus rendering him weak and helpless beneath her cunning wit. But she was only a girl of 16, and she was scared, and worse, she couldn't even remember how to say a proper greeting in his language, let alone give him the tongue-lashing he deserved. So she curtsied, and the two made an awkward approximation of conversation. And it would be only days later that she found herself standing at the end of a wedding aisle, about to marry the same man who had laughed in her face. The gown was exquisite, the venue was large and grandiose, and the crowd was enormous and filled with all of the most powerful and influential people in the realm, and Augusta hated every single bit of it. Well... Hate was a strong word, and Augusta was inclined to dislike strong things. Strong spices, strong alcohol, and most especially strong arming, which is exactly what her parents did to make her marry, and what her mother-in-law had just done to get her to agree to wed at this chapel in particular. This whole affair made her wildly uncomfortable, and she had a knot in her stomach about it for days on end now. But there was no time to think about it. Her mother-in-law was walking her down the aisle and whispering in her ear the entire time, Go here, do this, say that, smile more, stand straighter, look forward. Command after command floated into her ears and Augusta should have been grateful. The, the queen was personally walking her down the aisle to her groom, but she knew the queen didn't do it out of particular love for either Augusta or for her son. She was just the only person who spoke English and German. In a horrific image that would sit with the princess for the rest of her life, the three of them stood together at the altar. Augusta, Frederick, and his mother. The unholy trio. The queen whispered translations into Augusta's ear for the whole ceremony, and Augusta couldn't tell if it was the most demeaning thing she could imagine or just the most humiliating. She was about to marry the crown prince, and she couldn't even understand the wedding vows being spoken to her. 
She was forced to stand there with a hollow smile plastered onto her face like some sort of porcelain doll while a sweat broke out across her brow. Her hands were shaking and her vision was growing blurrier by the second. She tried and tried and tried to take deep breaths and she, she tried to keep her eyes forward. She even kept her knees bent so that she didn't faint. But what she couldn't do was control her roiling, aching stomach. She realized with a slow sense of drawn-out horror that she was going to vomit. Oh God, that terrible, terrible feeling of inevitability washed over her in an instant. But she couldn't run. She would have felt less trapped if she'd been actually tied directly to the altar itself. As it was, this marriage was on rocky footing, and she refused to be the reason it dissolved. She would not go home to Germany as a failure. However, her body had different plans, and in a moment that would be burned into her memory for the rest of her existence, and likely long after it, in front of hundreds of nobles, Augusta turned and vomited her breakfast down the front of the queen's very expensive and extremely luxurious gown. What's worse is that her traitorous body didn't even let her faint or, better yet, die of embarrassment. She was forced to endure the rest of the ceremony in full consciousness, quietly vowing never to look her mother-in-law in the eye ever again for the rest of her life. For her husband's part, that was the moment he decided that he very much liked his parents' choice in a bride. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting that you chose this story because I've been listening to the podcast You're Wrong About, which mm -hmm. I love madly. Everyone should listen to it. And they were talking on the Anastasia episode because Ooh, yeah, I just caught see that Rasputin bug so hard after you did your episode. <laughs> They were talking about how young women in America love to dream of being princesses because the idea of a prince comes with responsibility. But for some reason, we don't attach the idea of being a political pawn to the idea of a princess. Right. It's not all fancy clothing and parties. It's being told who you're going to marry at a very young age. Often someone who's related to you or someone who's so unrelated to you, you can't communicate. Right, right. And it's having no say in anything. It's You might get to have luxuries, but at the expense of not getting to choose anything about your existence at all. And while you were telling the story, it made me think of, you know, Marie Antoinette, because that is a lot of people's including my first introduction to that political maneuvering. Mm -hmm. But it's just so true of so many teenage princesses. Oh, 100%. <laughs> you see it all through history. And I first heard about this story on the podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, which is a great trivia <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's very good. It's, it's very funny, very educational. And they were talking about this story, and I just got hooked on it and looking into the worst weddings of history and I fell down a whole rabbit hole and for some reason this one always stuck in my mind because of all the factors of her not understanding any of the words being spoken around her she didn't speak the language she was only 16 and then in front of everyone she throws up on her mother-in-law who also is standing next to her at the altar 
translating her wedding vows to her. Honestly, the fact that she didn't just fake faint, I think, was really a miscalculation. I agree. Oh, 100%. 100%. I would have just pretended to faint immediately. I would have just gone limp. Exactly. I don't even know what pretending to faint would entail, but I would figure it out real quick. (laughs) (laughs) I think she chose the hardest and maybe the bravest option, and that is to just finish out the ceremony. I think the queen chose the hardest and possibly the bravest (laughs) option if she finished the ceremony in that dress that was now covered in breakfast. Monarchies are just so interesting because... For the subject's part, you just have to hope that whoever's born next is a half-decent person who's capable of making intelligent political decisions. And then for the royal family's part, you're just stuck in this shiny, shiny, sparkly cage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... For so many people, they don't want the wealth or the power. And so many do. I mean, I'm not discounting that so many people want that wealth. They want that power. They want that control. But given the choice, I don't think I would, especially today, I would not marry into any royal family. No, thank you. I don't want any part of it. Uh, You know, it's a Friday and I'm not convinced I want any part of anything. So come back to me on another day and I'll have a a, a more well thought out answer. (laughs) (laughs) Can I interest you in some history at the very least? On this podcast? No. Oh, all right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Come back next week. And remember. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to dive into the history of Princess Augusta. She was born in Gotha, which is a city in Germany, on November 30th in 1719. When she was 16 years old, it was suggested that she wed the 29-year-old Frederick Prince of Wales, who was the eldest son of George II. A marriage alliance between Great Britain and Prussia had just fallen through, and George II was looking for a new alliance for his son. That is a much better age gap than could have happened. Yeah, really. It, for as insane as this whole story is, I, I'll preface all of this with, like, they didn't have a perfect marriage, but it was pretty happy. For all intents and purposes, from what everyone can tell... They seemed all right with each other. They were pretty good. Right. The puking was a prophecy for for future success. That famous uh, that famous saying that if you puke on your mother-in-law on the front of the altar on your wedding day, you're bound to have an okay marriage? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when the king heard rumors that his son Frederick might wed Lady Diana Spencer, granddaughter to the Duchess of Marlborough, and... Distant relative to that, Princess Diana. Ooh. Mm-hmm. He balked at such an arrangement. King George and Queen Caroline knew that they needed to make a new arrangement, and they needed to do it quickly. So Queen Caroline suggested that when her husband visits Saxe Gotha on his way to Hanover, he should take a look at the young Princess Augusta. The king did, and he returned, having deemed the princess suitable for his son. So Rowan, I put some pictures of Princess Augusta into our doc. What are your thoughts? Okay. So both of these portraits, they actually do have the Marie Antoinette vibe, if anyone's familiar, in that it, it has that style of the period, the very round, 
almost featureless face. Everything is just <laughs> yeah. like a smooth Very mask. cherubic. Right. The cheeks are just so pinched pink. The hair is, could be blonde, could be white. Who's to say? <laughs> mm-hmm. And this girl who is done up in so much finery somehow looks very mature and also somehow looks like a baby. (laughs) Yes. And I always wonder how much of these sorts of portraits are a favor done by the painter, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. You know, they don't paint acne into these things. You know, no, if you have a, you a crookedy did? nose, the guy's still going to make it look long and straight because those are the rules in whatever. Mm-hmm. To me, the portrait on the left, which is a little bit closer in, looks a little bit more what I would guess to be authentic because the one on the right is very – it seems very Roman-inspired. It has the very – it has the – Roman features, it's a little bit rounder, a little bit softer, a little bit more of the feminine ideals at the time. That's so funny. I was thinking the opposite way. Ooh, really? Yeah, because uh, for my story, I just happened to, you know, you go out left field, and I was looking at a lot of Italian art, and the women had those from this period, from the 1700s, the women had those, like, long, thinner faces that were very idealized in this doll-like style. And then on this portrait on the left, she is kind of rounder. She's just all little circles. And I imagine for a 16-year-old, that's very, you know, that's young. She might have just been made of cute circles. (laughs) I love that way of describing people. (laughs) So supposedly when the king discussed the matter of marrying Augusta with Frederick, Frederick simply replied that he would accept any bride his father decided was suitable for him. Oh, that 29-year-old man is already getting laid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All Frederick wanted was to obtain financial independence from his father, and this would happen through the additional allowance Parliament would give him once he was married. Hmm. So he didn't care who he married. He just wanted to be married. If you scroll down, Rowan, I've added two portraits of our leading lad below. (laughs) Please share your thoughts. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, well, we know what the ideals were at the time because, honestly, this could just be the same figure painted in the above portraits but dressed in pants with a worse (laughs) wig. I got to say, so um, we'll share these pictures online because this portrait, there's one portrait here that makes me laugh every time I look at it, and it's Frederick holding his hand up to a painting of little naked cherubs as if to say, babies. It is a very (laughs) weird choice. It's so weird. I can't figure out if the cherubs are supposed to be there for real and And three-dimensional. It looks like it's mid-fall. Its chin is tucked so deep into its neck. (laughs) As if it's there to be like, why is this man pointing at us? <laughs> and the one has the the cloth draped around its nether regions because I guess those are the rules. But the other one is just ever so slightly covered by a wisp of curl on the other baby's head. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. This portrait makes me laugh. So He chose this. He chose to be looking at like, look how rich I am. Painted babies. 
It's, it's so I choose silly. to see it as, look how rich I am. Actual cherubs in my house. <laughs> <laughs> what, the one maybe looks like an angel that's flying. Like, it's pretty standard. The other one looks like they picked up an actual baby and threw it across the room <laughs> and captured that moment. It's so... <laughs> Yeah, he just took actual infants and hung them by their little chubby arms with rope and put wings on them. And we're like, look how rich I am. <sighs> oh, okay. Okay, but the thing that I would like to note <laughs> is that even though the painters are clearly assisting these people, the human who painted Frederick did not assist him quite as much. He's got... He's got a nose-to-lip situation that is concerning. He honestly looks like one of those people that has perpetually damp on the outside lips. And for that, I am worried. (laughs) I am worried for Augusta. Yeah, so Frederick has his hair parted neatly down the middle in in classic coiffed curls. And in both portraits, he's wearing a red overcoat with a blue sash. Um, Definitely has, I would say... Not a strong chin. A weak chin. Yeah. He has a weak chin. (laughs) He's got a strong nose and a weak chin. Also, he, I mean, if we're being frank, he looks like portraits of George Washington if George Washington decided to dress like a Brit in red. (laughs) Kind of. That's a good way to picture it. So Frederick and his parents mutually loathed each other. I'm going to read you a quote that Queen Caroline once said about her son. My dear firstborn is the greatest ass and the greatest liar and the greatest canal and the greatest beast in the whole world and I most heartily wish he was out of it. Girl, you're the queen. You can take him out of it. She hated her oldest son. She hated him. And I in my research, could not figure out if this was like... So So I have two theories. One, that they were sort of... Because her his father also... Like, his parents hated him. Either they were somewhere on the narcissist spectrum, and he... In that situation, there tends to be a child who is the scapegoat and another one who's the golden child, and his younger brother was absolutely the golden child, and he... Could do nothing right. Hmm. But also, on the other side, I don't know if I believe that because based on some descriptions of him, he kind of sounds like he sucked a little bit. I mean, there is a portrait of him where his lips are perpetually damp, so there's no way he did not suck. Yeah, he sucks a little bit. But, like, still also, yikes, Queen Caroline. (laughs) That's a thing to say. I think about that a lot when I watch... Great British Bake Off, actually, and they interview the parents, and some of the parents say rude things, and I always go, like, <laughs> like this was your moment to make up nice lies about your child if you were going to do it. And they chose I, that moment to be sure that they didn't. Because I can go to my grave knowing that my parents will always say nice things about me if the camera crew behind Great British Bake Off... <laughs> Is filming them. Oh, 100%. My mom says the nicest things about me and you just, like, on the phone after listening to our podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So the motives for the ill will between Frederick and his parents may include the fact that he had been set up by his grandfather, even as a small child, as the representative of the House of Hanover. And he was used to providing over official occasions in the absence of his parents. He was born and raised in Hanover without his parents after his parents were called upon to leave when Frederick was only seven years old. He was left in the care of his granduncle, Ernest Augustua. Frederick was not permitted to go to Great Britain until after his father took the throne as George II on June 11, 1727. Frederick continued to be known as Prince Friedrich Ludwig of Hanover, even after his father had been titled Prince of Wales. In 1728, Frederick was finally brought to Britain and was titled the Prince of Wales himself on January 8, 1729. At court, the favorite was Frederick's younger brother, Prince William, Duke of Cumberland, to the extent that the king looked into ways of splitting his domain so that Frederick would succeed only Britain while Hanover would go to William. Oh, wow. Yeah. His parents genuinely hated him and i couldn't figure out why other than maybe they hated frederick's grandparents who gave frederick a lot of privilege like there there smacks a little bit of narcissistic parents in there but i can't i don't feel comfortable saying that that is in any way the case given that i'm about to tell you about how one of frederick's own friends said he was kind of a jerk I'm going to say what I said during the Hatfields and the McCoys. There's no good guy, I think. Agreed, except Augusta's a sweet baby who deserved only good things. But she's not a guy. Boom. Boom. (laughs) All right. So eventually, one of Frederick's best friends, Lord Hervey, wrote about him after their friendship bitterly ended, possibly due to jealousy over their shared lover, Anne Vane. They shared a mistress. Good for her. Oh, truly. Hervey wrote that Frederick was false, never having the least hesitation in telling any lie that served his present purpose. Apple didn't fall far from the tree. That's my I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is, 100%. So now that we have a visual on what our lovely couple looks like, it's time to talk about their meeting and their marriage. On April 17th, 1736, Augusta would meet her groom-to-be for the very first time. He welcomed her in Greenwich on the royal yacht, William and Mary. She walked onto the ship carrying a doll she'd brought from home, and reportedly, Frederick thought she was rather awkward and lanky, and told others such after their meeting. Who let her do that? Who let this girl meet her future husband, who she will soon have to have sex with without knowing him, walk on this ship holding a dolly? Oh, I know. Everyone did Augusta dirty. They packed her up, said, you'll be fine. They'll all help you. She arrived and they said, why don't you know everything already? We're not going to help you. Augusta, you can have a doll. Just put it in the suitcase. I agree. And that doll was her only thing from home. It was her comfort. And no one said, hey, just hold on. Like, just put it away. Hey, here's what it's going to look like. She was 16, okay? 16, away from home, on her own for the first time, meeting the man and the family she was about to marry into, and she didn't understand a single word of the local language. If I was in that situation and I was deemed afterwards to only be awkward and lanky, I would count that as a win. (laughs) There's always so much poise and grace you can expect out of any person, even an 18th century royal. (laughs) 
She's also a very sheltered 16. You very know, sheltered. This isn't a girl who's making a bowl of cereal for her midnight snack. She's a girl who's getting someone else to make a bowl of cereal kind of situation. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. She, she's very sheltered and so you unprepared. Make, you make a good point, though, because I'm not walking around with a doll. Someone taught me how the world works. And I know for a fact there are people that are telling other people that I am both awkward and lanky. <laughs> Think about being 16 years old and being sent away from your family for the very first time to the middle of nowhere that, or middle of somewhere you've never been and having a ton of responsibilities immediately put on your shoulders. Imagine how many languages she probably does know and none of them are the ones she needs. <laughs> I know. Oh, the poor girl. What's worse is that she was only given around 10 days to acclimate to England before she was escorted to St. James Palace in London, either on April 27th or May 8th. I found conflicting dates all over the place for the day they were actually married. History provides information, but sometimes it does not provide dates. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it was here that she met the rest of the royal family for the first time, and she made a favorable impression upon the king and queen when she threw herself onto the ground in front of them as a gesture of submission. <sighs> I'm so stressed. I know. I'm so stressed. All, everywhere you read about her on the internet, it's like, well, the king and queen immediately liked her because she just threw herself on the ground before them in submission. Which to me also says a lot about the king and the queen. Yeah, I don't think these are good people. No, no, I don't think so either. According to the University of Cambridge, Augusta had been chosen because of the provisions of the Act of Settlement in 1701, which made it imperative for members of the royal family to marry Protestants to retain their inheritance rights. George II's relations with some of the major Protestant powers like Prussia were strained, and therefore brides had to be sought from lesser German princely families. <laughs> Supposedly, Frederick's sisters were irritated when the Prince of Wales tried to alter seating arrangements for the family meals to give his future bride precedence over them. However, he was nothing if not a contrarian who did as he saw fit, and fortunately this was, surprisingly often, to the benefit of his new bride. Despite the behavior of his youth, he was dedicated to Augusta and seemed to treat her rather well. Despite a few fleeting affairs on his part, the couple appeared to have been happy together. So for all of his giving his parents the middle finger, it often served to do well by Augusta in doing so. So he treated Augusta very well and wasn't afraid to push back against his family trying to treat her poorly. I love that for her, I think. <laughs> I'll take it. This This... This could be a lot worse for her. At least he treats her well and fights for her. I mean, he has to fight for her because his family hates him. And so by extension would treat her poorly. But at least he stands up for her. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. I'm sitting here going, he has to. But truly, he doesn't. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The heck he does not. No. And that's what's worse. I do like the idea of emo boy Frederick being like, <laughs> my parents don't like my wife. I'm going to oh, be yes. nice to her. Oh, 
absolutely. He, <laughs> he anything his parents did or liked or wanted, he wanted to do the opposite. He just was an ass. He was an ass. So the wedding itself took place in the Chapel Royal in St. James's Palace and featured a new work composed for the occasion by the royal family's favorite composer, George Frederick Handel. Prints of the ceremony were produced and circulated widely. However, Augusta had little say in anything related to the wedding. The ceremony took place only a few days after Easter services, and very little redecorating was able to occur. Even if she were able to change the decor, her mother-in-law would likely not have allowed it. The king and queen, likely due to their distrust of their own son, gave very little control of almost anything, including the household, to Augusta and Frederick. Augusta was uncomfortable receiving communion from the Church of England, but was supposedly <gasps> threatened by her mother-in-law to do so. The queen threatened to annul the marriage and send Augusta home in shame if she did not do what she was told. Oh, that's so uncomfy because tied into that is her relationship with her God and her new mm -hmm. family. Oh, mm -hmm. no. Yeah. And they knew they had to marry a Protestant. It's all very, it's all very uncomfortable. And you feel the more you put it in the perspective of she's a 16-year-old girl, the more you try to imagine, at least the more I try to imagine myself in that situation, it's not just a story we're hearing about 300 years later. It's horrible reality. The reality of being told you don't get to choose any of this and you're just put in places and told what to say and when to say it. I, I, it's horrible. I, I often just sit around thinking about how grateful I am to be an adult in control of my own life. Because I think back to being in high school or when you were a kid and you just had no control over anything. And that's hard enough when you're not a royal put in front of hundreds of nobles set to marry someone and hold that weight on your shoulders for your whole life. After this episode, I'm almost entirely certain I'm going to eat ice cream for dinner just because I'm an adult and I can do that if I want to. I will support you in that decision. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're at the wedding itself. Augusta had met her groom only a handful of times. She can't understand anything happening around her. She doesn't know most of the royal protocols, and the only person who can communicate for her is her soon-to-be mother-in-law. This means that as she's walking down the aisle for her wedding to a man she doesn't know, she's doing so alongside her future mother-in-law, who subsequently stands beside her for the whole ceremony, translating everything. So understandably, eventually, Augusta's nerves got the better of her. And in a moment of kind of relatable anxiety, she turned and threw up all down the front of the queen's gown in front of the entire wedding. The mother being an actual part of the wedding ceremony in that way has some Norman Bates vibes in kind of an interesting way. Yeah, I, I from all, from what I can tell... A very dull silver lining to all of this is at least Frederick didn't have a creepy Oedipus complex with his mom. He hated her. She hated him. So there was none of that, at least, to contend with. The other bummer we see all the time in history, the Tsarina, for example, uh, Alexandra, she was a German woman mm -hmm. and she got blamed for so much of what was going on in Russia yep. while her husband ruled because she was a German. And 
Marie Antoinette was blamed for so much of what was going on in France. Foreign princesses always get shafted, and the fact that she is throwing up on the first big day that the public will ever hear about her puts her in, I would say, a dangerous spot, actually. It's not a great spot. I will say one uh, exception, not the only, but one exception to that is Catherine the Great, who came in as a foreign princess, immediately learned everything Russian, won the full love and support of the Russian people, and then kicked her toy soldier playing husband out and sent him away. We love Catherine the Great. (laughs) I love Catherine the Great. Ah, chef's kiss. Yes. All right, so... According to Rebecca Star Brown, Frederick took away from his parents' relationship that his father was too submissive to his mother, a dynamic he had no interest in repeating with his wife. The prince would keep Augusta at a distance, though he did instruct her to snub his parents at a regular clip, and she, not knowing the etiquette, often had no idea what she was doing. Caroline, for her part, rarely took offense, instead once saying, Poor creature, were she to spit in my face, I should only pity her for being under such a fool's direction and wipe it off. Ooh, that's a sick burn, though. It is a good burn. Augusta just seems to be seen by many as a doormat. And she wasn't. I think she was a little bit meek, but she held her own. Okay. It took Augusta a while to acclimate to her new royal life, and she was once famously chastised by her sister-in-law for being seen by passerbys sitting in a window in the palace clutching the doll she'd brought from home. Despite this, it was only a few months after their marriage that Augusta told her husband she was pregnant. Frederick was pleased with the news, but elected not to tell his family the whole truth. He told the family that the child was due in October, when in reality... Their first child would be born in July. To quote the website English Monarchs, the birth of their first child, Princess Augusta, on July 31st, 1737, took place at St. James's after Augusta was moved in the middle of the night by Frederick to travel from Hampton Court Palace while she was in labor to prevent his despised parents from being present at the birth. To ensure they would not be present, when Frederick informed his parents of the pregnancy, he advised them that Augusta was due to give birth in October, when in fact her due date was earlier in July. This led to a rift between the Prince and Princess of Wales and the King and Queen. George II ordered the couple to leave St. James's Palace, at which time they moved to Kew Palace. The Queen visited them before they left St. James's and made it clear that she did not wish to see them again. Queen Caroline got her wish as she died several months later without reconciling with her son and daughter-in-law. Frederick died at the age of 44 in 1751 at Leicester House from a burst abscess in the lung. Neither the king nor any member of the royal family attended his funeral, but were represented by the Duke of Somerset, and Frederick was largely unmourned by his father. Upon receiving the king's condolences, Princess Augusta appealed to his better nature, informing him that she placed herself and her children upon his mercy and protection. After which, the relationship between George II and his widowed daughter-in-law improved. There is so much going on there. (laughs) Yeah, let's unpack all of that. Real quick. (laughs) They put that poor girl in a carriage. Yep. Drawn by horses. Yep. While she was in labor? Yep, in the middle of the night. 
Oh, I'd commit a murder. Oh, I know. And I don't think she even, I don't know if she knew that her, that Frederick told his parents a completely incorrect birth date to try and prevent them from being there at the birth of their child. Compliments, affirmations, murder. (laughs) Compliments, affirmations, murder. And then the fact that this is so monarchical, the punishment is, you can't stay at that palace that I like, so you have to move to a different palace. (laughs) Yep, that is absolutely the punishment. Oh, there's just so much, so much to unpack there. Because the the king and queen were so angry about not being present. Basically, they really wanted to be there because they said they didn't trust. They didn't necessarily trust that it was Frederick's child, but also it wasn't so much that they distrusted Augusta that it was that they just, they wanted any excuse to claim the child wasn't Frederick so that they could then say that the next heir would be their younger son, not Frederick's right. child. They wanted the child to be born, I don't know, with black hair and then be like, oh, it couldn't possibly be because no one in our family has black hair. I do not know the color of these people's <laughs> hair. <laughs> I don't either. Everyone in the 17th century put powder on their hair because they used animal fat to <laughs> do their hair and then they put powder on it to set it. So everyone had that white hair right. during those years. And then... Yo, Queen Caroline, you kind of got your comeuppance. You just... A little bit. <laughs> well, she never wanted to see them again, and she didn't. It's interesting looking back at Augusta's behavior, you know, throwing herself at the mercy of the king and then it working out. Because if she had done that and it hadn't worked out, we would be like, ah, she was meek and, it... and then lame and then died or what have you. But it worked. Right. So now it we worked. get to say, what a clever political maneuver. <laughs> she had some other kind of clever political maneuvers um but then also can we just talk about real quick about how no one in the royal family attended frederick's funeral and he was basically unmourned by his own father what did this kid do i don't know i can't figure out and it's killing me why did they hate him so much (sighs) and they didn't seem like all around terrible people because like the king took pity on Augusta and treated her well. The queen did help her out at the wedding. They just really hated their son. Because as mean as Augusta would intentionally or unintentionally be to the queen, the queen's like, eh, she's just a silly girl. She doesn't know. I'm not going to punish her for it. When she could have. But I'm sure you've had an experience like this. Do you remember when, you know, you were a teenager and you'd go over to a friend's house and the parents would be so horrible to your friend, their child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then the child would also be horrible back. And then they'd all be so nice to you. Yes. And, <laughs> yes. and you know, I always, I was put in that position a couple times. And then the parent would say, you know, oh, Rowan, tell my child this, thisity, this. While they were all in the same room. So if this happens in suburbia, it doesn't surprise me that it happened in this family (laughs) this very already messed up family maybe he did something i don't know maybe he insulted his mother's powdered hair when he was a child i genuinely don't i i genuinely don't know i think it has to be a combination of everyone being a terrible person and also 
he had to have done something. Regardless of his relationship with his parents, Frederick and Augusta had nine children in total before Frederick passed away. He died 14 years after their wedding. Augusta was one of only three princesses of Wales who never became queen. After her husband's death, she was named a prospective regent for her eldest son, George. But she wasn't nearly as foolish as her late mother-in-law might have assumed. She quickly learned the value of presenting herself as a supporter of British culture. Her English improved quickly and was less accented than that of other members of the royal family. Ooh. I know. Her public image was that of a good mother and supportive wife, and she was always meticulous about ensuring her clothes were made from native fabrics. In fact, her status as a fashion trendsetter helped the British textile industry considerably. Augusta also spent years improving the gardens at Kew Palace, which are now a world-class botanical garden. Good for you, Augusta. Right? I want to go visit those gardens, so let's add that to the list. All right, the list is growing. It's going to be a great vacation. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Oh, I'm not. I don't think you're kidding at all, and I want it. Okay, good. That was the disastrous wedding of Augusta and Frederick, Prince and Princess of Wales. <laughs> that story's wild. I it's really wild. didn't expect it to be that. <laughs> it just... Can you imagine not being a princess and throwing up on your mother-in-law? And then add being a princess on top of it? And then add people 300 years later talking about it? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rowan, it's your turn. Tell me something crazy. I want to start off by saying that the reason I wanted to cover this part of history is that I found out some information about a wedding. Mm -hmm. But it turns out there's not a lot of information about the wedding. So you'll find that bit at the end. Okay. Uh, and we're going to have a, a, an adventure getting there. It's going to be a good time. So today I am covering Attila the Hun, the king of the Hunnic people from 434 CE to 453 CE, during which time he destroyed over 100 cities and increased the territory to legendary proportions. I am so excited. Okay. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. Before we get into the good stuff of history providing, I just want to clarify one thing. The primary source of information on Attila's life comes from the 6th century Gothic monk and historian Jordanus, who was basing his information on the 5th century historian Priscus of Panium, though only part of his information because those 5th century writings didn't survive in their entirety. So in 448 CE, Priscus, who was a Roman diplomat as well as a Greek historian, traveled with Maximus, the head of the Byzantine embassy, to meet with Attila the Hun. Sent on a mission by Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II, they came with gifts for the ruler of the Huns and left us with Priscus's careful notes on Attila's life, wives, and children. And these were included in his eight-volume series, History of Byzantium. Much, though certainly not all, of the first-hand information about Attila comes from that double filtering of Priscus's account of him. And in this episode, I have endeavored to include numerous quotes that derive from those sources. 
I will start with a quote from Jordanes himself. Quote, He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious in suppliance, and lenient to those who were once received under his protection. He was short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard was thin and sprinkled with gray. He had a flat nose and a swarthy complexion, revealing his origin. That is kind of the definitive physical description of Mm -hmm. Attila the Hun, because it's really the only one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, stocky, Wolverine-esque, short, stocky guy uh, with a thin, grayish beard. Who was presumably... Not as white as Priscus. I'm assuming a lot of people weren't as white as Priscus. Yeah, he was a Greek historian. There was no way. (laughs) Okay. This dramatically differs from the tone of a description of the Hunnic people by Roman historian Aminus Marcellinus. Abnormally savage... From the moment of birth, they make deep gashes in their children's cheeks, so that when in due course hair appears, its growth is checked by the wrinkled scars. As they grew older, this gives them the unlovely appearance of beardless eunuchs. They have squat bodies, strong limbs, and thick necks, and are so prodigiously ugly and bent that they might be two-legged animals or the figures crudely carved from stumps which are seen in the parapets of bridges. God, that's so painfully racist. It's so racist. Priscus was much more diligent, though certainly not perfect, about not simply describing the Hunnic people with just detestable racism written Mm, all over it. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you think about these quotes that I'm going to include, bear in mind that the Romans were the enemies of the Huns. And when the sum total of information on a figure comes from their enemy, there is no doubt that that opinion has an effect on each and every report. Apparently... Attila said these words about himself. There where I have passed, the grass will never grow. Likely, that is a complete fabrication, but who knows? (laughs) So the Huns were composed of the Alan, Ostrogoth, Scythian, Asiatic, and Turkic people. Thus, they were a multi-ethnic group with a wide variety of customs and ways of life ranging from nomadic to sedentary. They would fight with one another as often as they wouldn't, making them difficult to rule. The Hunnic people were based both in Europe and the surrounding area, likely descending from nomadic cavalrymen in China and Kazakhstan, though there is some debate about this. No one knows what language they really spoke, though Attila and his brother Bleda were both taught Roman and Gothic. Because the empire included such a wide range of people across such a massive and diverse landmass, it would be near impossible to make generalizations about day-to-day practices outside of Attila's army. 
I did learn, however, one interesting fact that I spent some time tracking down. It is the reason I have sunken eyeballs. Apparently, some members of the Hunnic Empire practiced ritual skull deformation, elongating the bone structure of the head. Yes, 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 yes. I've seen it. I've seen this. I've seen this. This is so interesting. It's believed that this may have been a way to signify people of a specific status or simply a way to identify the people of a common group. Either way, the Huns' conquest and expansion seems to have caused this skull modification to spread across large swaths of Europe, and it continued into the medieval era. It's so interesting. They would, like, bind the the back of the heads Mm -hmm. a little bit and stretch it out. And, of course... Many people will have heard of this from ancient aliens because they posed that that was people trying to look like aliens. No. 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 Just a really cool anthropological fact that people did and the way that beauty standards change and the way that we represent status. It is also one of the reasons that they think some Romans described Hunnic peoples as looking not quite like the humans that they're used to Mm -hmm. because that is a very dramatic difference but also it didn't happen in every corner of the hunnic empire right and a lot of the information that is on it is tinged with racism so it now is the historical community is kind of parsing it out uh but it is fascinating (laughs) Despite the variety of cultures, it's believed that power within the Huns was primarily a meritocracy. So a man who proved himself in battle could climb the ranks in society. Might makes right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a certain money printing franchise that may rhyme with shame of thrones. Game of Thrones? How do I how do I make it sound like not Game of Thrones? <laughs> um, goof of chairs, give the throne of bones, chair swords, fun with sitting places. Uh, anyway, I would argue that the Dothraki were absolutely based off of the Huns. If that's what you're getting at, it's 100 percent what inspired George R. R. Martin. Yes. I swear to God, every word in the English language failed me at that exact moment. (laughs) I just thought, oh, I get how Augusta felt. (laughs) Clearly, the Huns were an influence for the Dothraki in Game of Thrones. You'll feel it as we go through this episode. It's very cool. Mm -hmm. No one knows for sure, but Attila was born between 400 and 410 CE. He and his brother Bleda were the son of Munzuk, who died very early in their lives. Their uncle, Rujila, was king of the Huns, and he made sure that the pair were taught swordsmanship, archery, and, of course, horseback riding. They attended Hun war councils and negotiations to learn how to rule, and no one knows if Rujila actually had sons of his own or if Attila and Bleda assassinated them to assume power. Ooh, very But they did become Rujila's heirs apparent. One of my favorite stories about Attila as an adult really paints an interesting picture of him as a man. 
that I would like everyone to remember as we talk about Attila, the murderous conqueror. Okay. When our faithful Roman diplomat Priscus attended a Hunnic banquet, he described, quote, a luxurious meal served on silver plate had been made ready for us and the barbarian guests, but Attila ate nothing but meat on a wooden trencher. In everything else, too, he showed himself temperate. His cup was of wood, while to the guests were given goblets of gold and silver. His dress, too, was quite simple, affecting only to be clean. Additionally, his shoes, clothing, sword, his horse's bridle, everything, all of it, was unadorned. Ooh, interesting. To my mind, that seems like a conscious choice Mm -hmm. to influence people's perceptions, not an I don't like drinking out of golden cups. Oh, it's such a power move to say... I the only way to be powerful is to be the strongest and anything else is just a show and it's not genuine and it's not truly strength. I love it so much. So we are now going to blaze through <laughs> the war between the Huns and the Eastern and Western Roman empires. The Greeks, the Goths, the Balkans and the Gauls, those within the territory of the Roman Empire called Attila the Scourge of God. His sword was said to have been bestowed on him by the god of war, Mars himself. Or at least that's the story Attila wanted to spread after a man apparently found the weapon in a field. Um, This man discovered it after following a trail of blood from his injured livestock. There in the grass was our mythical magical sword. And when the man presented it to Attila... He believed that it was fate. As story goes, Attila was very influenced by prophecy. Remember the judgmental, racist, Roman writer, Ominous Marcellinus? Here's what he wrote of the Hunnic fighting style in his text, History of Rome. Quote, The nation of the Huns surpasses all other barbarians in wildness of life, and though the Huns do just bear the likeness of men of a very ugly pattern, they are so little advanced in civilization that they make no use of fire nor any kind of relish in the preparation of their food, but feed upon the roots which they find in the fields and the half-raw flesh of any sort of animal. I say half-raw because... They give it a kind of cooking by placing it between their own thighs and the backs of their horses. When attacked, they will sometimes engage in regular battle. Then, going into the fight in order of columns, they fill the air with varied and discordant cries. More often, however, they fight in no regular order of battle, but by being extremely swift and sudden in their movements— They disperse and then rapidly come together again in loose array, spread havoc over vast plains, and flying over the rampart, they pillage the camp of their enemies almost before he has become aware of their approach. It must be owned that they are the most terrible of warriors because they fight at a distance with missile weapons having sharpened bones admirably fastened to the shaft. When in close combat with swords, they fight without regard to their own safety, and while their enemy is intent upon parrying the thrust of the sword, they throw a net over him, and so entangle his limbs that he loses all power of walking or riding. Some of that 
was informative. Most of that was very racist. I wanted to include it specifically because this is what the Roman soldiers who fought against the Huns believed. This is this is the kind of propaganda that gets men to kill other men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and it does describe their fighting style in that we know, you know, they're coming in on cavalry. Uh, fighting from a distance was very important to them. Staying on the horse was critical to their fighting style. They did use nets and lassos to their advantage. And they had a much wider variety of skill with various swords because of the discordant nations that they conquered. Mm-hmm. So was he an asshole talking about raw meat? What the hell, dude? Yes, but I think it's important to imagine these soldiers who are often very young in Rome who are supposed to be, you know, we fight with honor. We Oh, yes. They, they this is back when fighting had very strict rules. Mm-hmm. And for them, it would seem very barbaric to not fight by the rules of battle. Battles have rules and wars are fought kind of in this like formulaic way. And they would have found the the Huns to be very unsportsmanlike uh, and very, quote unquote, uncivilized for not following the rules of battle. Yeah, it's such a bummer because they lost every time. (laughs) (laughs) The Huns were a terrifying force before Attila took power. Rumors of their viciousness were so rampant that it's said that they trained their horses to join in killing and brutally stomping their enemies. Attila's uncle, Rujila, terrorized the Eastern Roman Empire during his reign so much so that the Romans gave the Huns an annual tribute to keep them off their backs, essentially. Eventually, Rujila died in 433 whilst on a campaign against Constantinople. It's Istanbul today. Mm-hmm. Attila and Bleda, his brother, ruled together. At the time, the Huns' territory stretched over a massive amount of Central Europe— To consolidate the nation into one cohesive fighting force, they made a treaty with Roman general Flavius Aetius in 435. Not only was Aetius a powerful leading general of the Western Roman Empire, he'd also lived among the Huns as a hostage in his youth, spoke the language, and got along pretty smashingly with the ruling brothers. Love to see it. Excellent work. General Flavius. And just to clarify, at this time, Attila and Bleda terrorized the Eastern Roman Empire and got along just fine with the Western one. We're about to get into the stabby-stabby bit of this story, so let me quickly tell you what the Hun army looked like under Attila. And of course, its organization and power was refined throughout his rule, but let's just make sure we can imagine a little bit more what this terrifying force looked like sans Roman descriptors. Mm -hmm. 
According to C.C. Conway, Attila's army was organized by tribe. Each tribe consisted of 50,000 to 60,000 people. From this number, 10,000 comprised the army of mounted archers. This fighting unit was known as Tumen. The most esteemed title in Hun society, aside from king, was commander of the 10,000 horsemen. Former U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and historian Michael Lee Lanning describes the traditional dress of the Hunnic warriors. Quote, Hun soldiers dressed in layers of heavy leather greased with liberal appliances of animal fat, making their battle dress both supple and rain-resistant. Leather-covered, steel-lined helmets and chainmail around their necks and shoulders further protected the Hun cavalrymen from arrows and sword strikes. The Hun warriors wore soft leather boots that were excellent for riding, but fairly useless for foot travel. This suited the soldiers, for they were much more comfortable in the saddle than on the ground. That detail about smearing animal fat on their armor was incredibly effective. They also would put it on their skin to protect Mm -hmm. them from the elements. It was one of the reasons that they were able to survive in harsh conditions of battle. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that always gets armies is disease and starvation. Oh, every time. Yeah. Biggest downfall. And though the Romans like to look down on that practice, it was one of the things that most protected them. Yeah, absolutely. Though some will say the Huns fought on Mongolian ponies, there's a shockingly large amount of debate surrounding the horses that they actually used. Some accounts from the time describe the Huns' horses as being bigger and sturdier than Roman horses, so it's very likely that they weren't on the small breed of ponies riding with their, quote, feet nearly dragging, as some people like to say. Oh, my God. There was also a small camp of people who for a while were like, they didn't have stirrups. No one had invented them yet. Stirrups were absolutely... In use at that time. People always have and always will like to pretend that either different cultures or ancient people just didn't know anything and couldn't possibly be as smart as we are now, which is just not true. Everyone did things for practicality's sake. Everyone did their best to make things make sense. People are always been people. People always will be people. (laughs) The other very smart thing that the Huns did that just made sense was taking weapons from the places that they conquered. So Romans were surprised sometimes when the Huns carried curved swords Mm. because they hadn't really encountered them before. But in fact, those curved swords were incredibly beneficial for cavalrymen. Oh, yeah. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, it's in Game of Thrones. I totally digress. Anyway, Attila and Bleda just talked to their buddy Aetius of the Western Roman Empire, and together the Huns and the Western Roman forces absolutely destroyed the Burgundian people of France and Poland. With the Huns' help, Aetius also destroyed the Visigoths and Franks, thus allowing the general to continue to control his own territories and further solidifying the mutually beneficial relationship with Attila and his brother. Attila and Bleda formed the Treaty of Margus, 
with Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II in 439, and the deal included the Romans returning captured Huns and giving the brothers 700 pounds of gold every year in exchange for the Huns leaving them the hell alone. Damn. Yeah, that's just, here you go, delivered, signed, sealed. (laughs) Please don't kill us. (laughs) So now it's 441, and the Eastern Roman Empire moved their forces from the Danube region, which pretty much marked kind of the divide between the Hunnic territories and the Roman ones. They moved them to fight against the Vandals, who were causing trouble for the Romans in Sicily and North Africa. And so Attila and Bleda were like, hell yeah, the Balkans are unprotected, let's go. Because here's the thing. The Romans never returned the captured Huns that were part of the treaty. And the brothers claimed that a Roman bishop had entered Hun territory to desecrate and thieve from Hun graves. They wanted the unrecovered prisoners, they wanted the bishop turned over to them, and they saw their Danube offensive as just a bit of tit for tat. Former U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Michael Lee Lanning writes, quote, Attila and his brother valued agreements little and peace even less. Warfare proved lucrative for the Huns, but wealth apparently was not their only objective. Attila and his army seemed genuinely to enjoy warfare. The rigors and rewards of military life were more appealing to them than farming or tending livestock. So the Romans just had to turn back from Sicily to defend the territory that the Huns just absolutely brought to its knees. And meanwhile, the brothers still expected their yearly tribute of 700 pounds of gold because they didn't think that their act broke the treaty because the Romans had already followed it so poorly. I mean, that's kind of fair. It, it is. But the Romans also love like the letter of the law, so they'll use any excuse to use the letter of the law against them. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's all just a nightmare of... Half the men being like, but the rules, and the other half of the men being like, there's no rules if you're dead. (laughs) (sighs) So the Huns are having just a violent field day, and Emperor Theodosius II sends a general to negotiate. Bleda takes the general to see the sacked Hunnic graves, but no one really has any way of knowing who ransacked them. And there are Hun refugees in Roman territory because they don't actually want to go back to Hunnic territory. But the general is claiming no knowledge of them whatsoever. And it's not going well, and it's going way worse for the Romans. In a fantastically ironic twist of fate, the bishop, who most likely robbed those graves, later betrayed the Roman city of Margus to the Huns, So Emperor Theodosius II would have been so much better off if they had just turned that guy over in the beginning. Ooh, ooh, that is good. I love it. So Attila and Blader are mad. The Huns go destroy Margus, and all of the cities right up to within 20 miles of the Roman capital of Constantinople. 
and now Attila wanted a new deal. This would include 2,100 pounds of gold per year, the freeing of those Hun prisoners, and the immediate payment of 6,000 pounds of gold. Theodosius II of the Eastern Empire and Valentinian III of the Western both pay up. Whoa. You know that guy's scaring them at that point. I heard, though I didn't have a ton of detail for it, but both emperors in the Eastern and Roman Empire had to kind of lie about where they were sending the money because it was so embarrassing for them to (laughs) give that much gold to the Huns. I kind of love that. (laughs) They're like, oh, no, citizens, it's no big deal. Everything's decimated, but we're not paying them off. Bleda died in 445. Story goes, Attila had his own brother assassinated as a way to consolidate power. Brutal. This rendered Attila the most powerful military commander in all of Europe. And there is absolutely no information whatsoever about whether or not Attila killed his brother. It's possible that he died on a campaign. They were always in battle. Mm-hmm. It's possible he got kicked by a horse. He might have gotten food poisoning for all we know. But it is a certainly good story for Attila to have done it. Right. By 447 CE, Attila again tossed aside his treaty with the Eastern Roman Empire. He invaded the region of Mosia, destroyed over 70 cities, and sent the loot and slaves he acquired back to the Hunnic stronghold of the city of Buda, which may have been Budapest, but historians get heated about Mm. this. After being briefly halted at Thermopylae, Greece, Attila went on to sign another treaty with the Romans, but it is very obvious by this point that the Romans are just like trying to buy moments of not being massacred, and Attila does not give a lick. Hmm. The Huns now controlled Scythia, Germania, and Scandinavia. Attila had many wives. Life is good. But in 450, Emperor Valentinian III of the Western Empire and Attila the Hun become enemies. And it's all because Valentinian's sister sent Attila a ring. And we will get into that later because it is a great story. But for now, just know these men are mad. Boys, fighting, war, grr. In 451, Attila was really living up to the name Scourge of God. And with an army of about 200,000 men, he took what is now modern-day Belgium. And they moved through Gaul, quote, neither asking for nor offering any mercy. No Roman general wanted to face these forces, except Flavius Aetius, who knew their fighting styles. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the Romans, led by Aetius, combined forces with the Visigoths, Franks, Alans, Vandals, and Burgundians whose homes were all in danger. It was the Battle of Calon. Though Attila's forces managed to slaughter much of the opposing army, the Huns retreated, fearing sickness and starvation. And this was Attila the Huns' only recorded defeat. In 452, Attila came back hot and heavy, attacking Milan, Italy, 
Aquileia, and numerous other cities. In fact, he did Aquileia so dirty, it was so utterly destroyed that no one even knew where it once stood for a period in history. Oh my god. <laughs> Aetius no longer had an army to defend these areas from the Huns' violence, so they were pretty much just going unchecked. And one of my favorite bits of history that comes from this assault on the Romans is people, just average everyday people, fled to lagoons and wetland because they believed that the Hunnic cavalry would avoid that area because it wouldn't be great for horses. And they were right. And thus, Venice, the city of bridges, would come into being. That makes so much sense. Fear builds better cities? Fences make good neighbors? I I don't know. (laughs) War famously creates a ton of advancements. So it makes sense that we would create the city of Venice because of a war. Please don't kill us. No horses allowed, basically. (laughs) Attila the Hun mysteriously stopped his campaign at the River Po. There are numerous stories that account for his behavior, perhaps the most popular being that Pope Leo I met with him in an effort to protect Rome, and the fearsome Hun stood down. In this story, he may or may not have been contacted by St. Peter himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, totally believe it. Definitely no propaganda there. Absolute fact. Very likely, it was a plague that was supposedly making its way through Attila's army and the two-year-long famine in Italy that kept them from being able to replenish their supplies. Disease and food are the two factors that stop armies. Okay, Tracy, I know you're not a war buff, so now I bring for you a story. All right, let's let's hear the story. Lucius was an assassin, and he was sent to kill the finest murderer under the heavens. Never in his life had he felt fear quite like this. As a hired professional, Lucius considered himself somewhat of an expert on killing. Blade, bow, poison, and politics, he knew exactly how to get to a man and take him down. Thus, he was the first choice of a certain Eastern Roman emperor, who was definitely not Theodosius II. Absolutely not. Nope, nope. This Roman emperor, who was not Theodosius II, will absolutely go unnamed in this story due to contractual obligations as laid down by the Society of Hired Killers in the Handbook of the Year 450. It was because Lucius was a professional that when this unnamed ruler told him that he would kill Attila the Hun, Scourge of God, his face remained perfectly blank. By all accounts, Attila was a short, squat, beast of a man who never came down from his horse, had a stable full of wives, used a sword bestowed upon him by Mars himself, and practiced cannibalism. No problem at all. After a fortnight's worth of riding out into the grasslands, and about three more days of dawdling and enjoying the feeling of his own head attached safely to his body and his blood pumping securely through his veins, Lucius endeavored 
to sneak into the Huns' camp. His plan was to pose as an emissary of the emperor, bearing a message and offering tribute to the great and powerful cannibal king. The problem was twofold. One, in the three days he'd mucked around enjoying being alive, the messengers carrying the yearly tribute of gold from the Romans to the Huns had come and gone. And, two, Roman messengers, traditionally, made a habit of not referring to Attila as a cannibal king to his face. The problem with specialized careers, Lucius was beginning to learn, was a complete lack of knowledge in just about anything else. Attila let him get halfway through his groveling, gift-giving, and false message-presenting before he barked out a thunderous laugh. You were sent here to kill me, and yet you fill me with the mirth of life. Lucius was horrified to discover that the Hun ruler's Latin was much better than any non-native speakers had any right to be. So Lucius mumbled and stammered in his own native tongue much worse than Attila articulated it himself. The king of the Huns laughed again. Should I kill you, or should I let you, skilled assassin, do it for yourself? Lucius glanced down at the sword at his hip and thought, in light of Attila's words, that it had never looked quite so menacing. By now, every man and woman at the rowdy outdoor feast was laughing at him. He couldn't blame them. Lucius was a fool sent on a fool's errand. No mortal man could kill this killer of men. No, Attila interrupted Lucius's thoughts. I will let you live. I need a messenger, and it's not your fault your emperor sent you here to die. That was how Lucius transitioned from the role of assassin for hire to famously timely messenger. His slogan, delivered in a fortnight or less or your gold returned. Attila the Hun, scourge of God, eloquent speaker of Latin and definitely not a cannibal, had merely smiled at him written up a letter in the most beautiful script Lucius had ever seen this side of the Danube, and sent him on his merry way with a fresh horse. When you present this to your emperor, remind him that such wastes of my time will cost him. He may pay me in land, if he's tired of sending gold. Lucius was the only hired assassin from Rome to meet Attila the Hun, and live to tell the tale. He lived out the rest of his days with a very profitable messenger business. Don't shoot the messenger and receive 40% off your next service. He became quite rich in his new enterprise. And truth be told, it was all because that Hunnic horse was the fastest damn animal in the empire. Sending back the assassin sent to kill you is such a power move. I can't even begin to comprehend it. Oh yeah, it's so badass. Aside from the name and the obvious enhancement <laughs> in my telling. What, he didn't have a 40% offer on his service? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> I made up the way that I thought Lucius would try to get into the camp to kill Attila. But other than that, this story was exactly how I read it. To everyone's great surprise, Attila was merciful and sent Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius's assassin right back to him unharmed. 
I also included a personal joke for myself. Apparently, Lucius was the most popular name in ancient Rome, and I don't know how true that is, but I heard it once, and I thought it would be so hilarious to have an assassin who was essentially named John Doe. That's amazing. We should talk about Roman naming at some point, because there was basically like nine names for men in ancient Rome, and it's even worse for women. They're just named... Basically, like, if you have three daughters, it's like Claudia the first, Claudia the second, Claudia the third. Seriously? Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> and there's like four, no, not really four, but there's there's very few male names and they have a tri-naming system. It, we don't need to get into it now. We've got way too much to cover with Attila the Hun, but someday we'll talk about Roman names on this podcast. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I do love the idea of a class of Claudias, like 20 Claudias all mm-hmm. so now that we've made it through the war tracy let's talk about women let's do it it's generally assumed that attila the hun had a large number of wives though to quote ancient origins the only existing records were of the daughter of escom a political marriage for alliance kreka the first wife and mother to his three heirs and Ildiko, the last wife he married before his death. Other sources mention the widowed wife of his brother Bleda, whom he cared for, as well as the betrothed Roman princess, Justa Grata Honoria, who hoped that Attila would save her from a life of boredom, end quote. (laughs) She sounds cool. Honestly, she's kind of a pain in the ass, but we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Hun men practiced polygamy. They might take a wife within their family, such as the widow of a brother or stepmother. In battle, they took captives, whom they made slaves, to tend to their homes, livestock, and other tasks. And if a Hun soldier rescued the body of a dead ally from the enemy, they could inherit all of the dead ally's property and, presumably, his wife. I think that's fascinating. It is really interesting. It really makes you inclined to get your people back, dead or alive. It's to get your person back who's already dead. Right, but if you want to get them back alive, you know, that's just better for you to get them back alive. But if they're dead, you don't just abandon them. Oh, 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 I see. Because now you have an incentive to, to get them back. Yeah, and burial was very important within that culture, so it also makes sense in that regard. Within Hunnic culture, women held power. It's likely that they were tribal leaders, with widows holding special power. Priscus described seeing women mixing with Hun men, vocally participating in decisions ranging from the trade of goods and other politicking, which is in sharp contrast to what was going on in Mm -hmm. Eastern and Western Rome at the time. Attila's first wife was Queen Kreka. She was the mother to three of his six sons, Elak, Dengizich, and Ernak. She was formerly educated in diplomatic relationships and is credited very highly in Priscus's writing from his time with the Huns. He described meeting Queen Kreka, quote, This is where Attila's wife dwelled. I passed the barbarians at the door and found her lying on a soft mattress, The ground was covered with woolen felt pieces for walking on. 
A number of male servants were gathered round her while female servants sat on the ground opposite her, dyeing some fine linens that were to be placed over the barbarian's clothing as adornment. I approached her and, after a greeting, presented her with the gifts. Priscus then presented her with silver bowls, Indian spices, and dried fruit, and the fruits and spices were considered to be as valuable as gold to the Huns. I think that this is an interesting interaction because in Roman society, there's no need to present gifts to women in quite the same way that there is in Hunnic mm. society. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you always want to make nice on political trips, but this was a big deal. If they didn't bring gifts to these women... It was a huge offense. It would be considered... Yeah, it was considered hugely offensive. Another of Attila's wives is unnamed, but noteworthy. She is called his, quote, alliance wife, daughter of Eskim. It's most commonly believed that she was given to him by a Hunnic chieftain to strengthen an alliance, and this seems backed by a brief passage in Priscus's writing. However, some have asserted that she may have been Attila's daughter whom he married. And this is confusing because Huns did marry widows of family members, but incest did not seem to be in any way on the table. Hmm. I have no idea where this version of history began. I'm looking at you, Rome. But I yeah. would take it with yeah. a grain it, of salt. It does uh, have an air of propaganda against... The Huns to it. And because he had a large number of wives, they did vary in ages. And I would imagine just because she looked young, it was easy fodder. Speaking of marrying widows, many historians believe Attila may have married his brother Bleda's widow. He certainly made sure she was cared for either way. Priscus describes a very, very cool story about meeting her. So, at one point during their travels, a terrible storm forced Priscus and Maximus to take refuge in a Hunnic village. Quote, The woman who ruled the village, she had been one of Bleda's wives, sent us refreshments and beautiful women for sex. We treated the woman kindly and shared the provisions that had been set out, but we declined intercourse with them. We remained in the cabins, and at daybreak we searched for our belongings. After we tended to the horses and the other pack animals, we visited the queen. We greeted her and exchanged as gifts three silver bowls, some rabbit hides, pepper from India, the fruit of date palm trees, and other fruits that were valuable to the barbarians because they did not grow locally. We then thanked her for her hospitality and slowly withdrew. It's so cool to me that this Roman man had to go and deal with the fact that this badass woman was in charge. Oh, and like slowly bow his way out. Very good. Very strong. And I'm not buying it. There is no way those men were like, ah, oh, sorry, beautiful women. I don't want to get laid tonight. There's no way. No. I say I call bullshit. I'm, I'm thinking that one. I'm not. I don't. I don't know what to make of that part. <laughs> okay. Do you remember when I mentioned Honoria and the conflict that put Attila and Aetius on opposing sides, resulting in Attila's one and only defeat? Now, we are going to circle back to that. 
So it's 450, and Princess Honoria, the sister of the Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III, is pissed. She's just been betrothed to Roman Senator Bassius Herculanus, which is a major bummer for her because she wants to marry someone who can put her on the throne, and this guy is not interested in any more political maneuvering. So Honoria sends her servant, Hyacinthus, to deliver a message to Attila the Hun, begging him to help her. Within the note, she's enclosed a ring as the first down payment for his efforts, and promises more riches to come. Well, Attila reads this and believes that Honoria wishes to marry him, not that she's asking for a jailbreak. He accepts, sends several replies to Emperor Valentinian III, and expects not only to receive the Roman woman's hand in marriage, but also half of the Western Empire as her dowry. No wonder he accepted. He's not, he's not giving anything. He's just getting a lot of stuff. I just love this this woman being like, I hate this marriage plan. You know what? I'm going to write to the scariest man in the world. Enemy of my entire culture who I've been taught to hate and see if he can help me out. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's bold. The emperor tried to pass it off as a misunderstanding, noting that Roman women could not rule land, so the dowry was ridiculous, and that Honoria was already betrothed to another. Attila threatened to come to France and kick Valentinian out of his own palace, and thus the emperor turned to Aetius, who knew Attila best, and we had our aforementioned clash. Also, Poor Honoria had to marry the senator that she wasn't into. Shocker. This story just... I do kind of see Honoria as kind of a giant pain in the ass in that I don't know that she's really taking into account that thousands of people could die because she's doing this. Like, when the Huns attack Rome, it's not just a pretty battle. It's decimating entire cities and burning them to the ground. Her writing to this guy and being like, come and save me. Here's a ring. Uh, Good luck is not a good plan for any of the people in lower society. No, but she doesn't seem like someone who's particularly worried about that. I mean, the fact that she didn't want to marry him because he wasn't interested in political maneuvering speaks to an extremely ambitious woman. It, it's with the Game of Thrones references. It's very Cersei mm-hmm. Lannister. If she was, in fact, trying to marry Attila the Hun, I do have a little more respect for that plan. I do... Love the idea of her being like, Senator, no. Most ferocious killer in all the world that I'm aware of? Let's go. Mm-hmm. Do I speak the language? Hell no. Do I know what it's like to be in a nomadic society? Absolutely not. <laughs> like, No, but she's being bold, making moves, taking charge of her own life. <laughs> Attila's final wife was named Ildiko. 
And she was described by Yoranes as, quote, an exceedingly beautiful girl. And this is where we will begin the story of his death that inspired me to research Attila the Hun. So Attila was in his sometimes grasslands home that was now modern-day Hungary, and he's celebrating following his wedding to Ildiko. And then Attila died that night. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was not ready for that twist. (laughs) And this is the reason why I wanted to cover this story, because he didn't die in battle. The most ferocious killer in all the world at the time Got married, had a party, got drunk, and did not wake up the next morning. Oh, my God. I never put any thought into how Attila the Hun died. I never would have guessed that that was it. So there is rumor that Ildiko conspired with Martian, the rival ruler of the Byzantine Empire, to kill him. There's another story that he died of alcohol poisoning because there was so much partying or possibly that his esophagus hemorrhaged. But the last, most prevalent story is that he died of a nosebleed that may or may not have been caused by a severe brain hemorrhage. Some say that he drowned in his own blood, but if it was caused by a brain hemorrhage, it's very likely that he would have just bled out, drunken stupor, or no. Either way, when he didn't appear the next day, his compatriots broke down the door and found Ildiko weeping over his dead body. And when I first heard this story, I was all excited because I thought that there was going to be some intrigue or whatever. But nope, that's all we get. Damn, I was really hoping that it was like, oh, they thought she killed him. And then it was something cool. No, he just he just plum died in his sleep, huh? Apparently, he did have an excellent time at his wedding party, though. Okay, so he was 50 when he died, which is notable because he was constantly fighting in battles, and it's shocking that he made it that long, not to mention this is a penicillin-free time. But the thing that happened after his death I find so fascinating. So according to ThoughtCo, once Attila died reports Priscus, the men of the army cut their long hair and slashed their cheeks out of grief, so that the greatest of all warriors should be mourned not with tears or the wailing of women, but rather with the blood of men. Attila was buried in three coffins, one nested inside the other. The outer one was of iron, the middle one was of silver, and the inner one was of gold. According to legends of the time, when Attila's body was buried, those who buried him were killed so that his burial place would not be discovered. Anyone who participated in his funeral was killed, and that was considered a very honorable death. The gold and silver were to symbolize all of his wealth, the iron to symbolize his prowess on the battlefield. And to date, no one has discovered Attila's body, despite numerous scandals regarding possible discoveries, including one 2014 one in Budapest. The version of his burial that most interests me is a tale describing that his followers diverted a river, buried Attila the Hun, and then allowed the river to return to its rightful course to fully hide and protect his remains. That's so cool. That feels like something they would do. And Tracy? If that's making you think of the Epic of Gilgamesh, you would be thinking correctly because (laughs) guess who was buried under a diverted river and whose body was found where it was supposed to be 
in 2003, apparently. You're not about to tell me that they found the body of Gilgamesh and I just missed that. Apparently, that's how the story goes, but I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole because the Epic of Gilgamesh is just too much and too many. No one has found Attila. It has fallen into kind of the mythology of, like, where could he possibly be? The empire was massive. It could have Mm -hmm. been Mm -hmm. any of about a billion rivers. As the Vintage News so elegantly put it, quote, At the time of his unsightly end, in 453 AD, his empire stretched from Central Asia through Central Europe all the way to modern-day France and from the Danube River to the Baltic. However, unlike Attila the Hun, his heirs didn't have the ability to keep his empire safe from disintegration. Three of his six sons fought for control, fracturing the Hun's forces, and by 469, the Hunnic Empire fell apart. Always frustrating when you hear about really impressive leaders who are so obsessed with their own success that they don't plan for their succession. I know, it's so frustrating. Same thing with Catherine the Great, since we mentioned her earlier. Mm. She was so focused on her success that she did not prep for what happened after her death. This is a pretty horrifying portion of world history. It's just conqueror against conqueror, just thousands of people being used as arrow fodder, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. But it is interesting, and he was someone who truly shook the world. And even though I wanted, like, an espionage wedding story... I really just like the story the way that it is. His life is just interesting. And it's so fascinating to me hearing about the Huns through the lens of the Romans because Mm -hmm. so much of history is controlled by the Greek and the Roman narrative. Yeah. I think we did it. History provided. History provided. That was really cool. I knew... I would say no more than 50% of what you told me today, and I thought I knew so much more about Attila the Hun. Although not how he died. I really didn't know how he died. I genuinely thought it was in battle. I don't know why I thought that. I knew almost nothing about Attila the Hun until I did this, (laughs) details-wise. I wish I knew if Ildiko survived, or if they killed her thinking she may have killed Attila. There are so many romantic paintings of a very white woman oh, weeping yeah. over a very mm-hmm. not white man. <laughs> but, of course. But none of those are accurate to history. Um, I I know I kind of buried the lead, but his wives, I think, are just the coolest yeah. I mean, to be married to such a powerful man and just such a fearsome warrior, like, you have to be a strong woman for that. And we obviously don't know about all or potentially even most of his wives. Mm-hmm. He only had six children, which shocks me. I'm wondering, did the Huns have great birth control? Like, Because yeah, Frederick and Augusta were, had more children than that. I know. Were some of the children considered not legitimate by virtue of which wife they came from. I don't know. But at least his queen and 
his brother's wife were both actually ruling and making decisions. Mm -hmm. And when people would come to liaise with the Huns, they were a huge part of controlling their visit. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that's so interesting and... It's so. It's just so cool. I think that's so yeah. cool. So there we go. We did it. And we're about to go on a little two-week hiatus. We are. We're going to take a break for the next two weeks, and then we will be back with a brand new episode. Because we have uh, some, <laughs> more than some work to do for you guys. So we're <laughs> going to take two weeks to kind of work that out. But before we scoot for two weeks we just really quickly wanted to thank all of our patrons who have allowed us to have a second season of this podcast it exists because of these humans <laughs> yes a hundred percent and and for anyone who isn't a patron, just the fact that you listen to this podcast and you engage with us in whatever ways you can or do, please know that that means so much to us as well. Specifically, we wanted to take a moment to thank our patrons, Kenneth L., Justin K., Leah, Okotoroku, D-Man, Jamie H., Maria R., Roger R., Mark H., Sebastian M., Michael T., Emily J., Mark O., Helena R, Shane R, Amanda Y, Tom W, Daphne O, and Jeremiah Y. We absolutely would not get to be Willing and Fable without you. Thank you so much. So with all of those fuzzy feelings, I think it's time for you to tell me a little something good, Rowan. My something good this week is that I am trying to Hayao Miyazaki my own life. Oh, I love that. People talk about it a fair bit on the internet, but if you're not privy to that corner of the virtual space, the idea is that Hayao Miyazaki, in his work, he talked about this in a few interviews, but more or less he tried to romanticize daily life to inspire children and his viewers to get excited about the little things and really feel as if it's not just big adventures that make life so worth living. And so I've been watching Hayao Miyazaki movies that I love, but, you know, they they really savor those moments with food and just oh the, God, like yes. the views of the landscape or just laying around and reading. And so I am trying to fully romanticize all of my little daily activities. And when I tell you that lighting a candle really puts me there... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's i guess a work in progress something good but it's really fun I, it's given me sort of permission to take a little bit more time to relax than i normally do and that is so nice yeah i love that hey trace mm -hmm. tell me something good all right my something good is equally just a little happy thing i um spent the day hanging out with my mom and we went to this new coffee shop, like I said, in my hometown. And just my something good is that I love oat milk lattes and oat milk iced coffee. And I'm really into a lot of different um, – I've been – like I, I mentioned a while ago that book, um, Your Brain on Food. Mm -hmm, yeah. 
uh, I've been following some of these suggestions, not all of them and not religiously, but I've just felt a lot better. And looking at ways to reduce dairy, focus on probiotics and taking vitamin D because I just sit inside all day, just taking the steps to take care of myself. Rowan constantly texting me, reminding me to drink water. And um, I'm just feeling a lot better. And so one of those things that has brought me so much joy has been oat milk lattes and oat milk coffee and finding new ways to make my coffee routine every day something I am truly just in love with and that brings me joy so it's my little ritual and I tweak it every day and find new ways to make it make me happy but it always brings me so much joy Hmm. I think I'm going to make an oat milk matcha latte I'm gonna Hayao Miyazaki my oat milk matcha latte oh my god drizzle some a little bit of honey on top make it look very aesthetic uh there's highly recommend getting a super cheap milk frother if you have oh, I have one. one, babe. Mm. Froth up some oat milk and put it on top, and then it floats on the top. I'm obsessed with aesthetic drink videos on TikTok. So, I know. <laughs> so I highly suggest doing something like that. So that's my something good. Actually, if you could send me a recipe, that'd be real helpful because I'm constantly walking the line between a matcha latte that's not sweet enough and one that's way too sweet. Yeah, I can't I got you. get it. Thank you. The trick is to put the sweet stuff in the milk that you put on top. Okay. Hook a girl up. (laughs) Then you can control it and add it. I'll I'll send you. I got you. In the meantime, we hope you guys have a really amazing two weeks. Have some fun. I hope you're playing lots of tabletop games. I hope that you spend some time with Leah from Greenleaf Geek. We are so proud to have partnered with Greenleaf Geek for the springtime. And we will see you very shortly. We will. Thank you so much for joining us today. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or please tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.